John chapter 13. Let's take a look at verse 21. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, That is the one from whom I dip the morsel and give it to him. So then when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose. Excuse me. Now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, Buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Father, again, I ask for your help this morning. I pray, O God, that you would strengthen me to preach your word. Help my voice this morning. Let your word go forth, O God. Let hearts be changed for the glory of Christ. Amen. I mentioned this last time, I believe, in the last sermon. Uh, This scenario, maybe some of us have been in such a scenario where uh, friends were gathered together and there was a discussion that needed to take place that was of crucial importance, but it couldn't happen at that time because there was an antagonist in the room, one who was not with everyone else in unity, uh, did not have a unified spirit within him. Such was the situation in the upper room on the last night before the crucifixion. Close friends for the last three years, yet one of them there was not with them. Judas, the traitor, the betrayer. As long as Judas was there, there was only so much Jesus would say. But he left the room. And as I was thinking about this, practically speaking, as Soon as Judas left, we see that automatically Jesus went to talk about the things of the Lord. And we consider situations in our own context. When someone leaves the room, what could we be prone to do, which they did not do, is speak about Judas, who just left. No, Jesus went right for the things of of the Lord. First, foremost, God's love glorified. God's love glorified. We see this in these verse right here, <clears throat> verse 31 and 32. 
when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify, glorify him immediately. So Judas left the room. The atmosphere changes. The traitor was gone. The betrayal was underway. A shift in focus, a shift in mood is noticeable. Moments before, Jesus was saying how he was troubled in spirit. Now he speaks about glorifying God. The way of the glorification of the Son of Man is stated in the, in the Greek. It suggests that it is something that has already happened. Nothing is going to change this fact. Nothing could thwart this plan or interfere with it. When Jesus speaks of being glorified here, He is looking to the cross. Also, we'll be looking past the cross. Darkness left the room when Judas left. The tension was assuaged. Jesus could now speak specifically to those who were His own. The fellowship was now unburdened by wickedness. There would be no pearls thrown before swine. The precious gems that Jesus was going to share would be to His own. Jesus ministers to His own when Judas left. Those to he, whom He will die for particularly. The words of Christ for the people of Christ. Those whom He would, who he would die for. And verse 32 speaks of His glorification in, in really in three ways. God is glorified in Him in His cross. God will glorify Jesus in Himself, future tense. And God, God will glorify Him immediately, without delay. So let's consider this. God glorified in Him at the cross. When we consider the cross of Jesus Christ, we consider God was glorified there. And we could list numerous reasons of why that is, but we'll look at a few this morning. The atoning death of Jesus Christ is the central moment of all of history. Everything before the cross looked to it to be done. And everything after the cross, we look back to the cross and say, that was it. That was the moment in history. The central moment. James Boyce says, nothing that has happened in the world's history from the beginning of creation until now or will ever happen before that day when all things will be wrapped up in Christ is as significant as the crucifixion. So as significant as it is for us, we go back to the cross time and time again. We go back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the atoning death of Jesus Christ, God is glorified in that. Christ is also glorified in His cross by freeing those who are under condemnation in Adam. Those who are in Adam. See, you're either in Adam or in Christ this morning. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, I'll just read it. Therefore, just as... 
through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And in verse 17 and 19, For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all. All men, all who would be freed in Christ. Christ is glorified in His his cross by freeing those who are under condemnation. Also, Christ is glorified at at the cross as He defeated Satan. He defeated the devil in Christ's atoning death and resurrection. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 tells us, Through death, He, being Christ, might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. The devil comes, the devil could not keep Christ in the grave, for Christ rose victorious from the grave. Satan has been defeated by Jesus Christ. He has been cast down, yet we await the final consummation. And until the Lord returns... Satan still assaults, he still persecutes, he still deceives, and is on an all-out assault on the church of Jesus Christ. And he is on an all-out assault on your children and the children in this country. Make no mistake about it. Be on guard. Be serious about the things of Christ. He will destroy them if he can. And take you down with it. He's at all out war on the church, yet he is restrained, although not completely restrained. There is the tension of the already and not yet. So we're not to underestimate the power of our adversary. John Blanchard writes this, We are opposed by a living, intelligent, resourceful, and cunning enemy who can outline... Outlive the oldest Christian, outwork the busiest, outfight the strongest, and outwit the wisest. But we are not to overestimate Satan either. We're not to think of him as some kind of a deity that is as powerful as God, because he is not. So God is glorified in Christ at the cross, the atoning death of Jesus Christ, and freeing those who are under condemnation, and conquering and defeating the devil. Jesus looked past the current situation that he was in at that time to being glorified, which begins at his cross. Not only is Christ glorified in the cross, but also the glory of the Father is displayed. The cross shows God's perfect divine justice. The righteous sentence of death that was placed upon Christ in our place. God is glorified in in this perfect divine 
justice. God is a just God. He is a merciful God. He is a just God. I, I, at times I'm interested in court cases. I'm interested in sentencing. I want to see what the judge is going to do. I witnessed a judge. This was video. Watched it. Maybe some of you are familiar with this or video, internet, whatever. The judge had the ability to sentence this man to death. It would have been justice to do so. But he sentenced this man to a life sentence without parole, which was justice as well, but yet merciful to the convicted criminal, for there's still time for him to get right with Jesus Christ. Perfect divine justice at the cross. When the righteous sentence of death was placed upon Christ in our place, we all deserve the death sentence. We all deserve God's wrath. But it was placed upon Jesus Christ on that cross so that all who would come to Him in faith and repentance would no longer be under that wrath, but would have forgiveness and mercy and grace. We could examine God's attributes one by one and see how they're interwoven or directly displayed in the cross, such as holiness. God who is holy cannot look on iniquity. When Christ was made a curse for us on that cross, God the Father turned His face away because He cannot look on sin because He is holy and perfect and just. But one attribute stands out, not above another, but that is magnified in the cross. And that is the love of God. God so loved us, He sent His Son to die for us. God the Father is glorified in God the Son, and God the Son is glorified in God the Father. Jesus says in verse 32, this glorification or this glorifying is imminent. It is to happen immediately. From that point where he was at that time. How so? In Gethsemane, which is the garden. In Gabbatha, which is the pavement before Pilate. And Golgotha, the the skull at the cross. God received glory in all of it. God's love glorified. And then secondly, God's love expressed. God's love expressed. He says little children. Jesus says little children. Children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Notice the address here to the disciples with affection. Little children. Jesus has been with them for about three years now. For the next two chapters, chapters 14 through 16, the fact that Jesus is soon departing will be the backdrop for his teachings. He addresses them with tenderness, letting them know he is departing soon, and they will not be able to come. Remember, he just washed their feet, told one of them, told them that one of them would betray him. 
Now he says he is leaving soon and would also tell, that, tell Peter that he would deny him. So after all this time, and he says, I'm leaving you, you cannot follow me. You cannot come to me at this time. So the fact that Jesus speaks here with tenderness like a father to his children shows us his concern for them. Shows us his concern for his people. This term of endearment, little children, is found only here in the Gospels. Jesus waits uh, to use this term until Judas left the room. Notice Judas was no longer here. Judas leaves the room, goes out. The backstabber has left. The betrayer has left. The disciples are there, his own. He says, little children, speaking to them tenderly. Judas could not be called one of his children, just as unbelievers should never be called God's children. Christian, don't ever say, well, we're all God's children. That is not true. Only a born-again Christian is a child of God. Someone without Christ is not a child of God. We pray that they would be adopted into the family of God by faith and repentance, God calling out to them and saving their soul. Little children is a description used by John in his other writings. First John. John picks up on this phrase, uses it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God as he writes First John. And don't turn there yet, but I'm going to give you all of these. You can turn there if you want to. I'm not going to hold you back. But we're going to go there specifically in First John in a little bit as well. If John wrote this in 8090-ish, um, 90 AD, some, somewhere in there, this is decades later after the upper room. He has lived quite a bit. He has wisdom. He is older. older. He has banged elbows. He is scarred. He has been scuffed up. And here he writes, and he picks up what Jesus said. Remember, John, a very young man, some scholars say a teenager, right there with Jesus. And hearing Jesus say, my little children, what does John say when he writes 1 John? Well, I'll give you several texts, and I'm just going to read them. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He says this as a man who has walked with Christ for years. And in chapter 2, verse 12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for His name's sake. And in chapter 3, verse 7, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. Chapter 3, verse 18. Little children, let us not love with words or tongue, but in deed and in truth. Then in chapter 4, verse 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. And then he, he finishes off 1 John chapter 5, verse 21 with little children, guard yourself from idols. This tender concern as well that the gospel writer John has as he 
is writing 1 John. So little children, I am with you a little while longer. Only a little while longer I will be with you. As we consider uh, the Gospels here, another phrase, we, we will see this again. We will see this again in chapter 14, verse 19 of the Gospel of John. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. He's going to say this. He did say it, but we're going to see this as we study it out, that he says something similar again to the disciples. And then in chapter 16, we see something similar as well. 16 and 16 of the Gospel of John. A little while and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Some of his disciples then said to one another, What is this thing he is telling us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. So they were saying, What is this he says? A little while. We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this? That I said a little while, and you will not see me? And again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. And Lord willing, we will get to that text and cover it when we get there. But he says in verse 33 of chapter 13, You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, I say to you now, I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Okay, so this is important when we consider what else he said that was similar, that he previously said, that is different than what he's telling his disciples right now. He said something different to the Jews, the religious leaders who were opposing him earlier. Chapter 7, verse 33 through 34, he says, A little while longer I am with you, and I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me. He says this to the religious leaders. And where I am, you cannot come. And in chapter 8, verse 21, he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me. This is to the religious leaders. This is not to the disciples of Jesus Christ. I go away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. For I am going. You cannot come. He does not add here, as he did before to the Jews, you will not find me, which is significant. The focus here in this verse of where Jesus is going is to the cross. So as we consider the disciples, they, they could not follow Him at this point. No one could follow Him, nor accompany Him to the greatest act of love that has ever taken place and sacrifice that God has ever showed is the work of redemption. Jesus would have to endure the suffering and mocking alone and would endure the wrath of His Father alone. The greatest example of love, Jesus just spent three years with His disciples and was about to commit the greatest act of love in the history of mankind, the cross, where Isaac Watts 
put it this way, where sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? The Word of God says God demonstrates His own love towards us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The cross is irrefutable proof of God's love for us. Sinclair Ferguson says, The early fathers of the church used to say that Christ extended his arms on the cross so that he might embrace people from every tribe and tongue, every people group and nation, to the ends of the earth and to the last day of history. God's love expressed. And he says, uh, Jesus says, "A, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, with them all this time, poured out into them, as I have loved you, love one another, he says. And he's saying this with the cross in view. The sacrifice in view. Not thinking of himself in view. Thinking of us, people of God, in view. He was about to depart from the world. The only example of true love was in the midst of the disciples. And he was about to be taken from the world. The cross, the resurrection, and the ascension. So the question for us is, how are others supposed to know of the love of Jesus once He departs? Well, Jesus is leaving. How how are we supposed to know about His love? Well, the answer, of course, is through the love of His disciples. That would include us. Love one another. Jesus says this twice in this verse. Three times if we count verse 35. It must be significantly important. Jesus loved the disciples. The disciples loved Jesus. Not as much as they thought... Not as much as they said that they did, for we see that they would scatter when the time came. They would leave Him. And it surely did not seem like they loved one another as disciples, for they were arguing over who is best, who's going to be greatest. They were jealous of one another, argued with one another. So Jesus gives them a new commandment. What does this mean? Well, we've seen the commands in the Old Testament to love God and love others. Um, I'll just read these for you as well. No need to turn there. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. That is one to have a post-it note on your mirror and to meditate upon that verse or wherever you want to put it in your house. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And then Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we see this in the Old Testament. Then we see Jesus say something which should sound familiar to us in Mark chapter 12, verse 28 through 34. I'll just read it for us as well. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognized 
recognizing that he had answered them well, and asked him, What commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, God, is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And the second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all the burnt offering and sacrifices. So this man had understanding. When Jesus saw that he answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. He did not say, you are going to the kingdom of God. He said, you are not far. You have understanding of these things. So what sense is this a new commandment? Well, the standard of love is in their midst. The example, Jesus Christ. New in significance in the person of Jesus. The love demonstrated by Christ commanded by Christ, surpasses demands in the Old Covenant. Who is the object of this love? Not just, as in the Old Testament, not just your Jewish neighbor, but all people who are in Christ. Consider that believer this morning. Loving one another. Loving fellow believers. We love those who are fellow believers in Christ in a different way than the rest of the world. And if you don't understand what that is, you have a misunderstanding of the love we're supposed to have for one another in Christ. I did not say we do not love people in the world. I say we have a different love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And by this love, loving one another in this way, all men will know that we are His disciples. They can observe the love we have for one another. It should be observable. It's a present tense love that we have for one another. It is an ongoing love that we have for one another. This new commandment, as he says, is in the emphatic position in the Greek. D.A. Carson says it like this. It is presented as the marching orders for the newly gathered Messianic community. Or the New Testament church. To love is not new, but to mutual love and affection Christians have for one another, which is based on Christ's love for His own, is what is new for this new community. And He is calling them, and He is calling us, to walk in His footsteps. We find four passages in 1 John where we see that we are to love one another. And this is the point in time where we will go to 1 John together. Please turn with me if you would. 1 John chapter... We're going to read, we're going to look at a few passages and I'm going to rest on one and we're going to look at that one. So we're going to be in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5. We'll end with chapter 4. Okay, so I'm going to skip over that. 1 John chapter 2, verse 7. 
Remember who's writing this. Remember where he was in the upper room too, as well with Jesus. <clears throat> First John chapter two, verse seven. Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. But to one who, the one who loves his brother <coughs> excuse me, abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The one who loves his brother abides in the light. Look at chapter 3. Verse 11. For this is the message which we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Pause there for a moment this morning. A reminder for us this morning, Christians, of who we are and how the world views us. You hear about that pastor in Canada that got kicked out. I believe it was a library or an event because he was protesting the fact that they were having drag queens with youngsters. Threw him out. The man got arrested. Pastor, Canada. Do you not be surprised that the world hates you? <clears throat> we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love, abides in death. See that again. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. For those who struggle at times, God, where am I at with my salvation? Do you love the brethren? That is a a help for us to understand who we are, having a love for the brethren. He who does not love, abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Well, consider that text for a moment. People consider that only good people go to heaven. That's an outright lie. We consider the Ten Commandments. We consider murder. It doesn't have to be the physical act of murder. Anger in a heart without just cause. One is a murderer. Think about that. Anger, hatred towards his brother is a murderer. You know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. If there's any anger in your heart this morning, even in believers, even any of us, or bitterness, it's time to go to the Lord with that once again. Ask him to help us with that. We know love by this. How do we know love? By this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren does not say lay down our lives for the lost people who hate Jesus Christ, although we should be missionaries to lost people who hate Jesus Christ. But this text here says, lay down our lives for the brethren. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and then closes his heart against him, 
How does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. That was chapter 3. Let's go to chapter 5, verse 1 through 5. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. So consider this right here. Consider this first verse. Whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. Whoever loves God the Father loves the Christian. By this we know we we love the children of God, our brothers and sisters in Christ. How so? When we love God and observe His commandments. When we love God and we follow after Him. For this is the love of God. What is the love of God? Here it is. That we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. They are not burdensome for the believer. They are helpful for us. Don't His commandments keep us from so much if we would just obey what He says? And then in chapter 4, which leads us to our next and last point. First, we had God's love glorified, God's love proclaimed, and now God's love displayed. God's love displayed. Chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So there's reasons. A distinguishing characteristic of a Christian is love for one another. Distinguishing characteristic of a child of God is love for one another. We find several reasons here in this chapter alone. Why? I just read one. Love is God's nature. God is love. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we love God, but He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So love is God's nature. God is love. Also, God loves His people His own with a particular redemptive love that only the child of God knows. And therefore, since we know such love, we ought to have a specific love for the child of God as well. Verse 12, No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. The world will see the love of God by the love we have for one another and our love for Christ question for us to leave with today. We're not leaving yet, so don't get excited. Does the world see the love of Christ in you and in me? Does the world see the love of Christ in you? Verse 13 through 17. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, 
And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we, believers, may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. This love that God has shown us, and that, has, that continues to grow within us, and a love for him and a love for his people continues to grow in us, in our sanctification, we also have confidence in the day of judgment. This love, a distinguishing characteristic of the Christian. This Christ-like love is not only a distinguishing mark of a Christian, but is a badge. It's not the only distinguishing mark, but is a badge of Christian discipleship. The love is the, the love the fellow Christian has here, and we are to have, is not a suggestion. It's a command. Continual, genuine, constant love for your brothers and sisters in Christ is a distinguishing characteristic of being a child of God. This love is only produced by true conversion. A love that goes beyond speech, but is shown indeed in truth. And at times, the most loving thing we can do is tell someone the truth. This love must begin with a relationship in the covenant community of believers within the local church, living, serving with one another in our local church. It requires getting into real relationships with the people of God. It's easy to say, oh, I love this person or love that person. Do you know how to pray for this person? Do you know what their needs are? Do you know where they're hurting? Do you know how to pray for such and such person? Do you care? It requires getting into real relationships with the people of God. God's love glorified. God's love expressed. And God's love displayed. And with that, I will pray and our brother will lead us in the communion this morning. Father, thank you that you have shown us such great love. No greater love knows no man than this. Than he who would lay down his life for his friends. You sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to lay down His life for us. How then ought we to live, O Lord? Do we love one another as we ought to? Help us to love one another as we should. Perhaps some in here don't even know what that means because they have not been a benefactor of your love, Lord. They've never bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. They've never sinned, seen their, excuse me, they've never had sorrow over their sin. They have indeed sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But they've never turned to you and asked for forgiveness. Turned to you and repented of their sin. Oh God, that you would impress that upon their hearts this morning. Oh Lord, as we go to the communion time, please prepare our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.